This is Rabbanit Leah Sarna and Rabbi David Walkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We're the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in Chicago, Illinois. This week, uh, we are thinking about Pesach, and the podcast is going to be about Pesach, particularly about the Knights of the Seder. We're going to discuss a few issues that come up in planning, attending, uh, being at a Seder, observing the mitzvot of the Seder night, and uh, it's going to be, I think, a really interesting conversation. Our, our opening topic is going to be a little bit of a debate, which we wanted to uh, share with our, with our listeners concerning uh, that when it, one is planning a Seder, um, is it better to have one Haggadah that all of those in attendance can use, or or, or not? Okay, and I, I'm going to ask you to please like open with your with your, uh, your 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 claim, and I'm going to counter. <laughs> so I think that um, if you have a room full of learned people who can easily follow along, then great. Have as many different Haggadahs with all kinds of different commentary. Fantastic, but it's amazing at a Seder to have a whole diversity of people. And some of those people might need you to be able to call out page numbers. And I know in our show, we love calling out page numbers in multiple books. In the Black Haggadah, it's on this page. and the Gray Haggadah, it's on this other page. But wouldn't it be easier if we had one unified Haggadah? And obviously, it's the same text everywhere. So if you have someone who really knows what's going on, they want to bring their own Haggadah, amazing. But to say, you know, if you if you think you might need some help following along, we're all going to be having this Haggadah. I have enough for everyone. Join me on page one as we begin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, it really it really makes the Seder that much more accessible. So what Haggadah are you uh, using this year, your Seder? Um, I think of the Shul Seder, hopefully we're, we're collecting Maxwell House Haggadahs. We have about 30 of them, but we'll see if that's enough. Okay, what edition of the Maxwell House? <laughs> I don't know, it's behind you Okay, <laughs> fine, fine. So I, I want to... Um, counter with, with a count. I mean, obviously everything you say is true, and there is a great convenience of being able to just say, uh, page 12, second paragraph, please read with me, or take a turn reading, etc. Uh, but as it turns out, thinking of through my life, I don't think I've ever attended a Seder that was run that way, and I have attended many, many Starim and led you know, many Starim with great diversity of guests, people who knew all sorts of languages or didn't know many languages, and somehow it's worked out to have a diverse collection of Haggadot, and people have just been generous and gracious about uh, looking to, out for the person sitting next to them and uh, asking the person sitting next to them for some help if they get lost now and again. And what I found is that the diversity even of like where certain paragraphs are divided, mm-hmm. uh, let alone the translations, let alone which languages the Haggadah is translated into. Uh, we have some Spanish or French Haggadot in, in our, our collection, and that just adds to uh, kind of the excitement, right? Every translation is itself a commentary. Uh, every decision of where to divide paragraphs is itself, that's an editorial decision. That's a, a kind of a statement about what you think the passages mean, and when there are those differences right there in the books in people's hands, that can spark a conversation. It can spark further questions. The point of the Seder is not to read through it and keeping everyone uh, safe, but no, pr- prompt questions prompt a little bit of confusion, which hopefully can be resolved in, in a creative way. So we have to, have collected a, a really wide uh, variety of Haggadot. We try to buy at least one new one each year. Uh, and uh, when guests arrive, they are, they're shown a, a wide sampling of Haggadot, and they pick one, and they can swap it if they don't really like it at some point. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and that's, how, that's how we've done things for a number of years. But I also think that the Haggadah is not... A- 
meant to be the centerpiece of the night. And if you have a Haggadah with beautiful pictures and cool um, commentary, you might be inclined to say, such a cool book, let me sit here and read this book, which I think is really not the point of the Seder. Mm. There is a strong argument to be made to have those Haggadot in your collection and use them to prepare for your Seder and to get yourself thinking in advance. But the text of the Seder is, the Haggadah is just a prompt. Mm. Um, The text of the Seder is the experience you're having with the people around you and the things that they say. And if someone across from you says something really interesting and you miss it because you're busy reading the commentary in your Haggadah, that's kind of a loss, right? It's meant to be a conversation. It's meant to be a question and answer. The Seder is meant to have a certain dynamism that in some ways I feel like Haggadot and uh, Haggadot with lots of commentary and also confusion when people have no idea what's going on don't really add to that experience. I certainly, certainly uh, endorse uh, preparing in advance. (laughs) That's always a good idea. Uh, It's it's always, always a good idea to take some time to uh, go through, look over. It's a familiar text, but it has so much richness and so much depth and we often forget from year to year uh, what goes where, what goes when, and, and I think more versions, more editions of the Haggadah have been published than any other Jewish book, more commentaries, more illustrations, each, which is itself a form of commentary. So it, it's uh, well worth the time, uh, a week or so before Pesach, to carve out some time from all the cleaning and the shopping and the cooking to uh, do some of that um, intellectual, spiritual preparation uh, for Pesach. For sure. Are you are you looking at any Haggadah in particular this year? So the the, the new Haggadah purchase this year was the, uh, the new um, graphic novel Haggadah that... Awesome. Uh, is being sold by uh, by Corin. Uh, it, it's really stunning. Uh, the illustrations, yes, are are a form of commentary. They evoke the struggle of Soviet Jewry uh, mm. as a very recent example of a, a branch of our people who were uh, living not in full slavery but under great subjugation and great facing great persecution and. And they have uh, achieved freedom either in the lands where they live or in Israel or here in the United States. And and the, seeing those images uh, put to the words of, of the Seder is very, very moving. Mm. Uh, another uh, neat element of that Haggadah, which should not be taken for granted, is that the Haggadah illustrations show women studying Torah with their sons and daughters and uh, sort of a much more diverse range of Jewish families uh, gathered together to celebrate Pesach. And I think it's really valuable to um, have Jewish books that reflect uh, the way our community actually looks as opposed to the way other yeah. communities look or as no community ever looked. Mm-hmm. Well, what you just said, I was just thinking as you were speaking that there's actually a tension in the last two things that you said because on the one hand, you're describing the Soviet jury struggle, mm-hmm. which certainly many members of our community were part of that. And for them, I can't even imagine how meaningful it is to see that reflected in a graphic novel. But I wonder whether for us, like, you look at, that's part of a, a whole genre of, right, there's Holocaust survivors, Haggadah, mm-hmm, there's, mm-hmm, uh, yes. and when we look at stories that aren't exactly our own as part of the Haggadah, I wonder whether, on the one hand, it helps, right, we're part of this grander Jewish people, and everyone's struggle is our, also our own struggle, but in some ways, it's also othering, like, oh, I wasn't part of Soviet Jewry, am I outside of the story of the Haggadah, or I would say, that, like, th- that's a little bit of a danger, like, no, you're very much inside the story of the Haggadah, and part of the challenge leading up to Pesach, and preparation is to to find yourself within that story and to find that story of your own liberation and your own like unique family lines liberation also um is is part of the part of the work of the cedar night absolutely absolutely i want to talk about another uh seder innovation that transformed our family's uh, experience of pesach some years ago uh, and this concerns uh, the ritual of karpas Hmm. there is a halachic question that the ritual of karpas raises uh concerning the bracha chrona the the 
so-called after bracha. Okay, the, <laughs> the uh, uh, should it be said and when should it be said? Because we say a bere priya blessing before eating karpas. That's really the main distinguishing feature of karpas is that it's mm-hmm. a food item that, upon which one would say bere priya uh, and then. When do you say the after bracha? Everything that we eat, we should say a blessing before and a blessing after. Uh, when do we would we say the after blessing following the karpas? Because shortly thereafter, we continue eating and we go on to... And uh, we don't say another pre-blessing for maror. Correct, correct, correct. It's a um, confounding situation. And one way to resolve this sort of mystery, this conundrum, is to eat less than an olive volume of karpas. Uh, because if you're supposed to say a blessing before eating even a tiny quantity of food, but if it's less than a kazayat, less than an olive volume, there's no corresponding obligation to say an after-blessing. Um, and, and so if you have a very small quantity of karpas, then there's no question that you would not say an after-blessing, and you can continue on in the Seder <laughs> in peace without, without worry. Uh, this always struck me as so unfair when I attended, you know, uh, Starim with people who had very strict definitions of how much matzah and maror had to be consumed using a very large, expansive mm-hmm. uh, shi or expansive measure of what a kazayat looks like, but then a very, very strict, in the other direction, small uh, quantity of karpas. I felt I was very hungry at that point of the night, and that yeah. uh, was not fair. But uh, in fact, there are others um, in our tradition, um, very notably in recent uh, generations, Rabbi Joseph Zalavechik, who felt that uh, the definition of eating in halakha is a kazayat. That, that's what eating always is in almost every area of, of Jewish law, and if the ritual is to eat karpas, then it must be at least a kazayat that one should eat, uh, and um, in, especially uh, if uh, it's late at night, which it is in the Northern Hemisphere here, at, you know, after daylight savings times, and people are hungry, and, and uh, it's going to be some time before uh, dinner is served, and so appropriate to have a, a larger quantity of karpas. And we've started doing, it's now been already, I don't know, at least uh, maybe close to 10 years that we've done this, we've served a karpas course, an entire platter of food items that upon which one would say a bray prihadama blessing. So let's that, review what some of those might be. Sure. So we have um, French fries. French fries. Yes. <laughs> any, any, any potato product, uh, not Pringles, but uh, potato chips that are more... Um, Potato-y. potato yeah, authentic and natural. Terra chips. Potato-based. Terra chips and other potato products, boiled potato. Uh, that was a, our family custom. Parsley. Uh, we serve carrots and little like crudita platters with uh, maybe pepper as well. Uh, we serve banana, which take a bre priyadama. Mm-hmm. I had a high school teacher who specifically served banana as karpas to, so that the generations of his family would know that the blessing is a hadama. That was the practice of Rabbi Tights of Elizabeth. Yeah. Yeah, he was from Elizabeth, okay, so I think so, he got it from there, yeah. So the custom of Elizabeth <laughs> is to eat uh, bananas at the Seder uh, to, to remind the children that the bracha for bananas is berei. Why is the bracha for bananas berei Oh, good question. <laughs> the bracha on bananas is berei priyadama because anything that, I don't know what all the English words for this are, but anything that the like tree part of it doesn't last from year to year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so bananas, if you look at a banana tree, it looks like, I don't know, like a little palm tree or something like that. But really, that whole thing dies from year to year. Yeah, yeah. And that makes it not a tree. Right. There's no trunk with branches like those big banana leaves I think come right out of the ground each one of them. I, I don't think so. Well, there's an answer to this question. And, <laughs> we uh, will look it up. <laughs> I'm sure somebody will let us know but either, certainly it's, a, it's not a... Um, it's not it doesn't an, last for it's, not an enduring, it's not an enduring uh, tree type plant. And same way we should with strawberries. We serve strawberries at the Seder as well, also a Yeah, was that like a, a vegetarian Seder and they did like strawberries with cream? 
Ooh. As Carfas, yeah. That's cool. Dairy Seder. Okay, that's bold. That's really, yeah, really bold. Yeah, really, especially because you still have his row on the table, so it's kind of questionable. Oh, they don't do it. Okay. No yeah. vegetarian's row? <laughs> I don't know, yeah. yeah. A tofurkey's row. <laughs> so I strongly encourage, I strongly <laughs> encourage, uh, um, having more tofu, it might be kidney out, so that's, I'm not going to write. Uh, uh, so, but I strongly endorse a, uh, um, potatoes row. <laughs> <laughs> um, a Carpas course, Carpas platters, and, uh, I think it's a way, to be able to go into Magi, the lengthiest, uh, probably most significant part of the Seder, without having hunger pangs, nag- you know, sort of like churning in your stomach. Uh, and uh, it is also, again, this is endorsed by, again, Russell Vachik felt like Achila means eating more than a Kazayat, so so have have at least a Kazayat. And by the way, there's lots of times where we maybe theoretically should be saying a blessing, an after blessing over the course of the Seder that we just don't. Like we just yeah. traditionally, the Haggadah has developed this way that we do not. Yeah. Like yeah. we make over and over again the bracha before wine, and we right. Never make a bracha an uh, after blessing in between those. Right, right. It seems the continuity of the seder itself kind of keeps us, um, you know, at the table and 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 prevents those after blessings. That's an, yeah. Oh, though yeah. we do make one after blessing on wine, which is at the very end. We've already yeah. benched. Yeah. yeah. Right. Speaking of wine, yeah. uh, there's some interesting uh, points to remember as we drink the four cups of wine, because we we drink wine at the seder for those four cups, and we also drink wine at other Shabbat meals and Yom Tov meals. But so it's sort of in some ways it's very familiar from other Jewish rituals, other uh, holiday meals. In other ways, though, it's different, and there are a number of halakhic differences between uh, the four cups at the Seder and the one cup that you might have at the Shabbat meal, and I think it's sort of valuable to go through uh, them as well. So let's see if we can list them all. First is, at a Shabbat meal, one person can recite Kiddush, and everyone at the table can sort of listen and say Amen, and in that way, everyone at that meal has fulfilled his or her Kiddush obligation through hearing that one individual recite Kiddush. That's actually... Uh, maybe the preferable way to do it, Rov Am Hadrat Melech, is something kind of uh, uh, added to the majesty of a mitzvah when many people do it together. So if mm-hmm. one person makes Kiddush on behalf of the entire table, that's great that 5, 10, 15 people all do this mitzvah through this one individual. Uh, at at the Seder, one person might recite Kiddush, but, uh, but everyone is supposed to drink it mm-hmm. uh, because there's an obligation of four cups. That's a rabbinic obligation of the night of the Seder. Uh, and so everyone should drink, even though only... Uh, one person is maybe saying the words of Kiddush. Everyone says, Amen, and then everyone should drink. Unlike at a Shabbat meal where, yes, you may, some people have the custom, they, they do hand out, they do um, distribute wine and grape juice at a Shabbat meal, but there's really no need for everyone to drink. Really, the one making Kiddush doesn't even have to drink. Uh, someone has to drink. Someone has to, but not necessarily the one making Kiddush, right? Correct. You could make Kiddush and hand it to a, someone else, another person, and uh, and that's fine on Shabbat, but the Seder, everyone there should uh, should drink each of those four cups, including the Kiddush cup. And how much how much do you have to drink? So that's another difference. Uh, the Kiddush of Shabbat, really just a, a cheekful is sufficient. Uh, and that, again, that could be the person making Kiddush, it could be someone else at the table should consume a cheekful. Uh, at the Seder, since the Kiddush cup is also one of those four cups. Each of those four cups are supposed to be drunk uh, in their uh, majority, if not if not all of them. So it's you know good to find a cup that is uh, sufficiently large, but uh, but not really too large because you want to be able to drink four, you know the majority of of four distinct cups uh, of, 
of, of whatever size cup you have. Yeah, and then there's the question of what is it that you're drinking? So some families have very specific practices about this. Obviously, for people who can tolerate wine, um, wine is the ideal thing to be drinking. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons why someone might not be able to tolerate wine, in which case grape juice is perfectly acceptable. Um, but then there's all these traditions about red wine versus white wine. Oh, yeah, yeah. And those are tied into, as I understand it, they're tied into like a history of blood libels yeah, surrounding yeah, the Seder. Correct. So red wine would be like, you think we're drinking Christian blood? But I don't care what you think. And white wine would be, let's not let anyone think we're drinking Christian blood. Or red wine is, we don't have to, thank God, we don't have to worry about those yeah. uh, types of <laughs> accusations in, the, in our day and age. And we can drink red wine, which is better anyway. And, uh, and maybe it's a choicer fi- a form of wine. Uh, that's true. It's really interesting and it's sort of very poignant to read halakhic literature discussing these different uh, wine practices uh, without, uh, you know, when... Again, reflecting really the, the challenging um, elements of Jewish history, which they are written into the very halakhic sources that describe the Seder night itself. And also our wine is quite different, meaning when the Mishnah describes mozgim lo kos rishon, what does limzog mean? It doesn't just mean to pour, it means to mix. Yes. Um, that wine in, in Mishnahic times was always diluted. Um, and that might be, by the way, a solution to, like, if you can't tolerate that much alcohol, diluting your wine. It's not as delicious, maybe, but but it might be, it might be a way to go. I've, I've been thinking about doing that that this year. So, I mean, wine practices, just in terms of what it, what wine was and, and the availability of wine. Um, when Jews first got to America, they were making, my father writes about this, they were making wine out of raisins mm-hmm. uh, because of the avail- availability with, of grapes. Um, and then also, like, with prohibition in the United States, there's a whole story there also. And, the, and, the, and then Concord as a grape that you might want to make anything out <laughs> of is, like, a whole other story. That's funny. Yeah, I, I, I also, I, I once... Um... Uh, consulted on, the, on behalf of a of a woman who had gestational diabetes. Yeah. She couldn't drink wine. She couldn't grape drink juice grape juice better, yeah. either. And uh, the recommendation that I gave her was to drink tea or coffee. Mm. Uh, these are like a fall into that halakha category of a like significant drink in which in within our culture these are things that people drink not just or even primarily because they're thirsty, but they drink uh, together with other people as kind of to give uh, significance to a certain social interaction. You might chat with somebody you bump into on the sidewalk, but to meet for coffee, to sit down to mm-hmm. tea, uh, adds weight to the uh, to that meeting. And so for someone who can't have wine or grape juice, tea or coffee would be a, a good, a good um, alternative. Yeah, I mean, the, the diabetes and the Pesach Seder is, is a pretty significant issue, meaning just in terms of what you're eating and when you're eating and, and not being able yes. to time your own food based on your insulin levels and whatever. Um, I think I saw the Star K or the CRC put out actually a guide oh, great. to the Pesach Seder for people, for individuals with diabetes, happy to connect anyone with that and, and to consult, obviously, anytime. Cool. There's another another difference between the four cups in Kiddush, even at the Seder and in other holiday and Shabbat meals. That is the four cups should all be drunk um, reclining uh, to one's left. That's, not, that's a unique uh, Passover rule. Certain of the mitzvot of the Seder should be performed while reclining. And so drinking the four cups is one of those reclining mitzvot of that night. And that's not a rule that we have. Any other, mm-hmm. uh, I guess you could recline. You could choose to recline. Uh, it's an option we have the rest of the year. But Kulanu uh, Misuvin at the Seder, we, we do recline mm-hmm. uh, for, for some of these important uh, mitzvot. Uh, and another difference uh, between Kiddush and the other four cups at the Seder and Kiddush on Shabbat is the ability to, uh, we colloquially say, make early Shabbos. We, you can... Mm-hmm. Uh, certain points on Friday afternoon when it's able, and this is, we're leading into that season right now, we can 
recite Kiddush early and start Shabbat early and all of the restrictions of Shabbat then come early and all the sanctity of Shabbat comes early and you can have in the summer you can have a Shabbat uh, dinner uh, sitting on your patio getting a sunburn <laughs> before the sun has set even right yeah. uh, because that that's a neat power that Halakha gives to uh, to the Jewish people we can have some control over time in a really interesting way we can again start Shabbat early and it seems that on one level that that should work and does work at Pesach as well you could start Pesach early, you could light candles early. You could, you could in theory recite Kiddush early, and then all of the restrictions of Passover would uh, would begin for you uh, at some point. Uh, still in front, an era of Pesach in the afternoon. Uh, the the challenge is that Kiddush for Pesach isn't just Kiddush. It's not just the ritual that ushers in the sanctity of the day. It's also the first of the four cups that we uh, mm-hmm. consume at the Seder, which is a Seder ritual. And the Seder has to be at night. That's actually one of the laws that we learn about and study in the Haggadah itself. That's Russia, that, that uh, rabbinic derivation of of law is there in the Seder itself, and so the four cups are part of that, and and so Kiddush at the Seder really should not uh, begin until it's dark, uh, just like uh, all the other mitzvot of the Seder, which should take place in the dark. That's challenging this time of year, because it doesn't get dark until late um, here in the Northern Hemisphere, here in mm-hmm. Chicago, uh, when uh, we're in daylight savings times. I, I know we've been told we have listeners to the podcast uh, in other <laughs> parts of the country, in other regions of the of the globe. I guess they have different, uh, you know, timings, but but he, here in Chicago, it, it is a challenge, and and uh, for anyone facing that challenge, whether it relates to um, your children and their bedtime, whether it relates to your parents and their bedtimes, or mm-hmm. uh, the, the hosts who are setting a seder at a time that they choose and that, that you don't choose, I really, really encourage you to speak to one of us and we can go through uh, the timing and go through the Haggadah and come up with a game plan to uh, you know, enable you to be with family and to be uh, a polite guest mm-hmm. at someone else's home, but also to uh, make sure that the mitzvah of the night get, get accomplished. Yeah, so let's say I'm starting my Seder when it's supposed to be starting in my own home and I have total control, but I have children who are small and I want them to have a Pesach experience and I'm also pretty strict about bedtime. What what are some options vis-a-vis my children? Wow, so it really depends on the child and, and you know your children and you know how they uh, deal with delayed bedtimes. Some children uh, are great with it and they just sleep late the next morning. Some children don't sleep late the next morning when they stay up late and they're awful for weeks, okay? So you know your child and you know how much flexibility you have with their bedtime. If they have flexibility, you know they'll bounce back without too much difficulty. Seder night is a good night for them to stay up late. It's supposed to be a different night. It's supposed to be special. Uh, there are a few times a year where even those of us with very strict bedtimes, we relax those standards. And if you have nights like that, the Seder really should be one of those nights. They don't have to sit at the table the whole time. They can play in the corner. Sometimes uh, kids pass out on the couch midway yeah. through. That's fine. I think the specialness of the night is something that uh, should be extended to our children. If they're at an age where, again, and, and you know, knowing your children, they can appreciate that. Uh, another option, which we have done in some years, uh, again, thinking back, which combination of children or what ages, but there have been years where the kids have gone to bed pretty close to their uh, normal bedtimes. And then the next day at Passover lunch, we've had like a kid's Seder and we took out the Haggadot that they made at school and we did Karpas and Matzah and Mara. We did all of the, uh, all of the Passover rituals uh, with our children just for them. Uh, without guests, really just as a small uh, nuclear family unit. And it was really, really special the years that we were able to do that. And 
the kids felt really included in Passover in that way, but we also were able to um, relate to their bedtimes in a way that felt responsible to us uh, in those years. One memorable year, um, the twins were uh, probably toddlers or, or, or probably post-toddlers, but they because they got out of bed on their own and came downstairs at one in the morning and mm. uh, were ready to play and ready to party. And <laughs> I think uh, Sarah and I were like like scandalized and horrified, like, oh my goodness, what happened? And our Guests were delighted and uh, <laughs> uh, catch our kids up for a while, and, and, and a good time was had by all, and uh, <laughs> we, we all lived to tell the tale. This week, we are really honored and excited to interview Haley Leventhal. Haley is the Associate Director of our shul and of special interest to our podcast listeners. Haley is our producer. Thanks for having me. It's going to be really weird to edit my own voice. <laughs> yes. Having to listen to your own voice is one of the, the like least pleasant parts about producing a podcast, uh, in my experience. I would listen to my own voice all day long. So I'm <laughs> terrific, terrific. Um, Haley, tell us um, when you came to Anshay Shalom and, and, and how, how I think you are the most veteran um, member of uh, the Anshay Shalom staff here in the room right now. Yes. So I've been at Anshay Shalom almost six years now. Uh. And um, when I started, I didn't have a job and I was looking for a job, not intending to work as a synagogue administrator, but I found the job posted and I read what it required and I thought, I could do all of that. That sounds great. And I applied for the job and I got it and it worked out well enough that I've stayed. So what is your job exactly? (laughs) So we have a very small staff. It's just myself and Steve, who is the executive director in the office. So We kind of, between the two of us, do everything that needs to get done. Um, I create the bulletin every week. I send out all of the shul emails. I deal with a lot of event registrations and that sort of thing. I produce this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of whatever needs to get done, I help make sure that it happens. Can you tell our listeners uh, the best way to get the Rosh Hashanah seats that they want? Um, bribe. But- <laughs> it's bribes, right? I like chocolate. I like, yeah, no. Um, if you fill out the form correctly, like take your time, read the form, fill out all the things that's asking, get it in on time. And that, that really is the best way Amazing. to get Amazing. a good seat for the holidays. Get your form in early. Okay. Terrific. Can we ask you, since you've been, um, the producer of this podcast, what, 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 what's that experience been like? What have you learned about... A podcast production that you hadn't known before? Um, pretty much most things <laughs> about podcast production I now know. Um, I did not know before. It's been a really fun learning experience, actually, because it has been mostly very new. I've done a little bit of audio editing for various jobs in the past, but never something of this level. I've learned about audio equipment and audio editing and podcast hosting and how long it takes iTunes to accept your podcast when you <laughs> yeah. submit it for review and all kinds of things like that. So it's it's been really interesting, actually. And I know a lot more about podcasts now. Fantastic. fantastic. Someone wanted to meet you. Uh, where could they find you? You, you don't really uh, turn up so often uh, on Shabbat or holidays. So where, where can they find you? Well, I'm in the Shul office Monday through Friday. Come stop by if you're ever free uh, during the day roughly nine to five. Um, you can also email me. My email is shul at org. So yeah, email me, stop by. I'll probably be at the soiree. Everyone should sign up. I will see you there. 
Um, yeah. Wonderful. Do you feel like um, you know the membership of the show, even though you're not around on Shabbat? I do. I probably know more about them than they would think I do. <laughs> like, I know a lot of people's high holiday seats that they, they're where they tend to sit. Um, I Certain people, I know their address because I look at it a lot going through the list. You know, I know people sometimes call and they say their name and they say I'm a member and I, I know that they are because I know the name of pretty much all of the members, even if I haven't met them in person. So um, so people should feel really comfortable being in touch with you, basically, because you already know them. Right. I know that I definitely know their name, at least. So it's great to hear other things from them, too. And learn more about them. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming in. So that's our podcast for this week. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we'd like to thank our producer, Haley Leventhal, who you also just heard from on this episode of the podcast. As always, if you have questions that you'd like us to discuss in the podcast or just generally positive feedback, we always love to hear it. Negative feedback you can send by Carrier Pigeon to the office and we'll get to it when we have time. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>